Hello and welcome to the Reverend Hunter Podcast. This is Tony Jones. I'm the Reverend Hunter, joined as always by the genie to my Aladdin, Brandon. <laughs> uh, fun. Hey, I, uh, playing the playing the Robin Williams character is uh, pretty far off of who I am, but I'll still go with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, one of the things about uh, that that sidekick is he steals the show, man. He really does. He really does. I mean, every scene he's in, Robin Williams steals the show in that. I mean, in every movie, but for sure in that movie. That's when the where the side you you keep wanting the sidekick to show up because when he's in the scene, it's hilarious. I feel like Disney's good at doing that in general uh, for their sidekicks, making them kind yeah. of a star of the show as well. Yeah, yeah. Cool, man. Well, how are you doing? I'm I'm good. I'm good. Uh, you know, we're uh, I'm not going to complain about the heat. No, because uh, my son, my youngest, is in Dallas today. Um, in Fort Worth, actually, for orientation for college. And it's 102 there. Oh. So I'm not going to complain about 90 here. Uh, no. <laughs> no, not at all. No, 90 no. is not that bad. It would be nice if we I, had a little rain, but I'll take the 90 regardless. We really need the rain, man. Holy smokes, the the up, especially up by the cabin you know all the all the food plots we've planted for deer and everything they're really struggling because it hasn't rained up there in like two months yeah. um so not good not good at all and um but for the weight loss plan going out and umpiring town ball when it's 90 degrees yeah, I sweat off a lot of pounds. Nothing beats just having the sun at the back of your neck for a solid oh, couple of hours. Yeah, <laughs> wearing a black shirt and, you know, a protective gear. Yeah, I, I tell the catchers are like, oh, it's so hot out here. And I say, well, you get to go sit in the dugout for half the game. Yeah. And like, I'm out here the whole game. You get to catch a little breeze while jogging back to the dugout, too. Yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, so I got a couple more. I got a couple games coming up this week, and it's going to be—they're going to be scorchers. But uh, again, not complaining. No, um, we had a long winter, and now you know heat waves come and go. I'm hoping that it cools off before I head up north again. To, I went fishing a little bit last weekend. Uh, my my son outfished me as he always does. He hammered some uh, largemouth bass and some northern pike. So is it a yeah. uh, catch and release for you for those then I assume or do you for those they are yeah the 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 late the 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 fish we keep usually are the crappies and some sunnies you know big ones yeah uh for eating but um yeah we we catch and release the largemouth and I guess if somebody taught me how to get the Y bone out of a northern pike I would keep a northern pike but it seems like like this northern pike um it had a couple big open wounds on it the biggest one that he caught so, yeah, the northern pike in our lake, I don't know, they they always look to me a little bit wormy or a little skanky, so I don't I tend not to eat those yeah, either. It's not worth uh, it. I don't know what that's about. If or maybe it was hit by a propeller, I I don't know, but yeah, anyway. All right. All right. <laughs> on that note, yeah, how about it. you? What do you you been outside at, at all? I have been outside. Uh, I rent, so uh, my uh, landlord just planted some grass about like a week and a half ago, almost two weeks ago now, actually. And I've been outside watering it and moving the sprinkler every twenty. Minutes. Okay, okay. So yeah, I've been outside quite a bit. Uh, that and other, you know, getting out with the dog and fun stuff like that too. Yeah, yeah. 
And you got any camping plans coming up? Uh, you know, uh, we do in a, a couple weeks. I went camping a few weeks ago as well. Um, and mm-hmm. then, you know, just a couple every month from here on out, hopefully, for the rest of the okay. summer. Yeah. Nothing. I, I got a major one uh, planned. Not major, but a, a bigger one planned for October, where it's where I usually do my solo one. So, oh, nice. Set that up. Yep. Good, good. Well, I just uh, heard from a buddy who came out of the Boundary Waters uh, yesterday. And he said it's he's been going there for, I don't know, 30 or 40 years. And he said it's the worst mosquitoes he's ever seen. Yeah. When I was at Lake Chatech a couple of weeks ago for camping, it was those mosquitoes. It was gnats were really bad. And the black oh, flies yeah. were just terrible. It's bad for bugs this year. And then yeah, on a, top yeah. of it, there's fish kill on a couple of places where, where we were at. So then the bugs are even worse with that. So, yeah. And there's a, and there's a, um, a forest fire up there in the boundary waters. So they are moving people around. This guy actually did get moved off his campsite and he had to go to another lake. And that lake, there was only one campsite left because everyone was moving there. And it was very, it was like the, you know, the, the least preferable campsite, as you would guess, would be the last one left on a big lake. And it's right in a swamp, Ugh. you know? Uh, so it was, I think it was a pretty rough trip for him, but I also got listeners may remember Timo Rova, who was on the podcast a couple of years ago. Um, he, uh, he, he is a former smoke jumper and he sent me some photos from overhead of the fire. And, you know, he's just like, well, we talked to him about this, but we sh- I'll have him back on sometime soon to talk about this too. Um, he just is like, we been we should have been doing prescribed burns or letting letting fires burn like they do in Canada. But uh, there's just he said there is so much fuel for fires right now in the Boundary Waters that that you know for the next few years we're just gonna have we're just gonna have big fires. That's just how it's gonna be. That sucks. That's not good news to hear. Yeah. Well, um, our our guest this week is a conservationist himself, and we we even um, I, I can't remember if this made it into the recording or not, but we were debating about how to pronounce his last name. Motovalov is how I would pronounce it based on what I was taught, but of course it's his last name, so um, that's not how he pronounces it. John Motovilov. It works for pheasants forever. Uh, he's a conservationist. He's a wild game cook with a cookbook out. He's written um, a couple other books, short stories about um, the, the the southwestern part of Wisconsin where he hangs out and has a little cabin. He lives in Madison, but um, does his outdoor stuff in, in a more western part of the state. And he's also uh, a committed orthodox christian so we talk as in orthodox from like eastern orthodox from russia you know and so we talked about that um we talked about um, a a famous relative of his who talked to a saint um and wrote a little book about it um didn't even write maybe just passed it on down orally and then it's since been written down um but we talked also about what got him into the outdoors and into hunting and fishing. And we talked about where he's going to take me duck hunting this October. Maybe when you're out camping, I'm going to be down on the Mississippi river in a secret spot duck hunting, which I'm super excited about. So we had a great conversation 
uh, and we go deep. Man, we even talk about uh, some deep philosophy of Heidegger, some of the same philosophers that we've read over, over the years. So it's a great conversation. Glad to have him as a friend. And uh, I think you all will like this conversation. So please enjoy it. And as always, uh, like, review, subscribe, and feel free to pass this along, this podcast. And if you want to read my writing, you can find me on Substack, uh, where I I post uh, an essay every Thursday. I'd love to have you join in on that as well. All right. Thanks for listening to the Reverend Hunter podcast. And... Here's my conversation with John Motoviloff about conservation, pheasants forever, and Heidegger. Motoviloff. There it is. Yes. <laughs> what was it in what, what was it in Russia? Was it the same in Russia? It was, but it got transliterated wrong. wrong because you were related to some famous monk I am, or something. I dude. am famous. Yeah, yeah. And so it was his was with a V. But the same name, the, the confusing thing about it and the reason why it may be accented in a funny way, it's unclear whether like the derivation of that in the 15th century is Lithuanian or Russian. And that might explain why it, you know, it's accented the way it is. But yeah, there is a famous saint that spoke to an ancestor um, and the ancestors related. Um, oh, yeah, 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 right. Your ancestor was like the the... The scribe, yeah, the scribe. For this That's saint, exactly right? right. Like scribe, or or they would say in the Orthodox tradition, illuminator. You know. Oh, yeah, yeah. Why did he paint in the margins too? He he didn't paint in the margins. I think you're thinking illuminated manuscript, but but yeah, he he's someone who sort of brought forth the teachings of this of this saint. Tell you know? me about that saint. I mean, we're gonna get all the hunting and all that. Sure. But well, he. I read the I read the yes. thing you sent me, but my listeners haven't. Sure. So so. It, right, probably around the early 1800s, there was uh, Saint Seraphim who lived slightly east of Moscow and was kind of known for his great works. And there was this young nobleman, Nikolai Montevilov, who had his own sort of struggles in this. This Saint Seraphim was like a spiritual father to them. And I guess their most famous conversation is um, a treatise. They're talking in the woods. It's snowing. And there's a sense of sort of like all of this emotion in Russian. And so they, they, the, um, there's a sense that he's actually glowing when, when he's saying this, this the ancestor. Seraphim is. Well, Ser- so Seraphim says it to, to Motovilov and Motovilov says it to Seraphim. So essentially there's the, you know, the, the reading is that they're both imbued with the Holy Spirit at that wow. point, you know, so it's a, kind of a, kind yeah. of a big deal. What kind of stuff do they talk about in the woods? You know, there's not really a transcript of what? it. What? Yeah, there's not really a transcript. It's it's. So you were just taking Motovilov's word. We're for taking Motovilov's word, right? I just don't like we're, know, man. Just like Those we're gonna, <laughs> Just like we're gonna go out to an un, undisclosed island on the Mississippi, and you know, during the gales of October, <laughs> and shoot some ducks, and but shoot not some t- ducks, not tell anybody about, and it, not that tell it anybody happened. about it. You know, we'll tell them we're on a different pool. In fact, we'll tell them we're on pool <laughs> we'll, ten. We'll throw them off. Yeah, yeah, we'll throw some breadcrumbs that way. Okay, so. I don't okay this this conversation between yes. the two of them became very famous. So right, the conversation is famous, the 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 meeting is famous um and there's much written ab- about it, but okay. there's not a transcript of it per se. You know, and and Motovilov never did write that transcript. Did he come back and he must have come back and told people, "Oh, you he should did. have heard he, what he, Seraphim told he, me in the he woods." He did he did tell people and um it did actually kind of elevate 
Saint Seraphim's cause, mm. and um, and is known as kind of like the preeminent literature literature of you know kind of the acquisition of the Holy Spirit in in um, in, in Orthodoxy. Some, some no of the kidding? most, yeah, yeah, seriously. And so, what they do for the first eighteen centuries? That's a very good question. That's a, <laughs> they, they they ran around half clothed and killed each other, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then Seraphim came along, and, and those they, Russians just strained right out, didn't and they? And they all went to sort of uh, mediation classes, <laughs> as you can see today. Yeah, know? yeah. Just look at you. It, look at me. Look at me. And I don't. I don't. I don't harvest animals. I don't eat meat, and I don't drink alcohol, and I don't have any fun. You know. These are all. He's been. He's. He's using scare quotes, listeners. He's <laughs> scare using quotes. Scare I quotes. am using scare quotes. Um. Okay. I before we leave your ancestor. This Saint Seraphim, he, I'm just so confused by this because I'm from the Western tradition of Christianity right. where people tend to, you know, write stuff down yes. when it happens. Yes. And so this has been like more of an oral tradition? It, well, more of an oral tradition. There's something called the Philokalia. Oh, yeah, I know it well. And there is one of these devoted to, to the works. And I will have okay. to get back to you on that. Like I have read it. And at the moment, and I had sort of intended to dip back in, but it it is a sort of a it is a deep dive, yeah. And yeah. We can, and well, in I'm some a, ways, it's maybe may better for the listeners because I don't know to what extent listeners are going to want to take how, how deep they're going to want to go into <laughs> Eastern Orthodoxy here. You know. Well, I mean, of my whatever eighty episodes of this is the first one where we've done any deep dive on Orthodoxy. There so we go. Um, you know, in my in my forthcoming book, which will be out um, in early 2024, I have some quotes from the Philokalia. Okay. But from earlier, from mm -hmm. the Egyptian, you know, Abbas in the fourth century, the yeah. earliest of, of, the, of the Desert Fathers. And I'm a big fan of that book. Those, those, I, I appreciate the mysticism of it, and uh, I think it challenges me and some of my, my biases toward... Um, angelic and demonic forces. Mm -hmm. I tend to be skeptical on stuff like mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. but those guys were not skeptical about that stuff. They were not, and I'm glad you hit on the mysticism because I think that that is a sort of a, a a part of of Eastern Orthodoxy that that is is kind of well, it, it's a cultural legacy, and I it, it it's kind of appealing, and it's some in some ways refreshingly non rationalistic because. At the end of the day, it's difficult to prove something that's about belief with logic, you know? Yeah. And so to sort of jump right in and say mysticism is a part of this, you know? And, and maybe maybe it's more embraced there than it is in the Western tradition. So in some ways, that's refreshing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You gr Did you grow up Orthodox? I did. I did. I grew up as an altar boy. Um, Where at? Where in central you? New Jersey. Um, okay. St. Peter and Paul's Orthodox Church. Um and yeah, I think probably my brother and I each at one point or another considered, you know, thinking about the priesthood at some point. It's not something I did go into, but it is something that I thought about. Um, it would be a very difficult and arduous road. Oh, you know, it, 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 it's um, very demanding. But yeah, yeah. We, we, we were altar boys. And I think that the, probably the, the sort of the most interesting cultural detail there is that kind of grew up in an extended Russian and Ukrainian family and... Uh, had a very deep cultural imprint uh, with, you know, grandparents who would just, who were sort of an extended family, you know, and mm -hmm. would, would, my grandfather would, would fix everything around the house. And 
when my mom went back to work, my grandmother came and cooked, and so it was a very kind of rich cultural tapestry, and, and very, the, I mean, to cut to food, the food was something I never realized I had until I got away from it in college and realized, oh my gosh, you know, I'm having homemade blintzes and stuffed cabbage and borscht and, you know, dill and cucumbers and yeah. lamb and all these things, and, and uh, you know, you, you have your first cafeteria meal in college, and you're like, wow. This is not. This is not the stuff I was used to. Look, man, I have my, my last kid is at home, and today he ate two like those totally artificially huge Costco chicken breasts for lunch. Yeah, and I'm just like, I cannot wait for him to leave and get on the school cafeteria plan so they can f- supply all of his protein needs. It, it, you know, especially boys at that age, it's just oh pretty astounding. They're, yeah. they're just calorie machines. You know, I went to an ortho... The first time I went to an Orthodox service, I showed up, you know, whatever. The liturgy started at 8 a.m. or yeah. whatever, and I showed up, and it was just me and the priests. And then I found out, oh, nobody shows up till the first hour's over. Yes. Like, yes. The first hour is just the priests. The priest and some <laughs> of the really old school yeah. church ladies. Yes, um, yes. And interestingly, yeah, and that's sort of like a often sort of like a Vespers or an ortho service. And yeah, very, very lightly attended. Um, but yes, it, it, true, true. Why is that? Why do you, that's just a cultural thing? Well, you or know. two hours is just too darn long it's, to it's sit. It's a long service. And, yeah. and you're standing for, for a good part Most of it, of it too. Yeah. Um, I, in the, in the Russian tradition, when I grew up, the Vespers service was uh, Saturday night. And it was real strict that you pretty much had to go and do that. Oh. Uh, and it was not tied to the Sunday liturgy, whereas the church that I go okay. to now um, is Greek church, and it is tied to the to the liturgy, and it is generally lightly attended in the beginning. You know? So, so growing up then in central New Jersey in a in a Russian Ukrainian community, um, did I mean you didn't did you go to that first hour? <clears throat> oh well, we we so for the for the um, the vespers service we would we would we oh, that would was go. Saturday. Sorry, yeah, yeah. So the Saturday you no, went we, Saturday? we would go because we were altar boys. And then when but when you were in high school, you weren't going to church on Saturday night. Yeah, kind Come of on. were. Really? Well, you, I, it's you know it's just how it was. You know, I mean, it's just yeah, it's it's wow. that's just it was pretty strict, pretty pretty hardcore. And you know, I had a time when I drifted away from it and. Had a child and sort of drifted back toward it, and uh-huh. am there now. I'm. I'm. Don't agree with everything with all of the dogma, but it the the ritual and the connection um, are important in my yeah. life. You know, they help keep me centered, and for the most part, I think are positive. And um, and the other thing is just hearing the liturgy and hearing church Slavonic uh, and hearing some of the hymns. Say that again, hearing church what? Slavonic. So the hymns are sung in like basically what the equivalent of Latin uh-huh. is. Okay. And so just, just hearing those things and hearing certain hymns, it brings, it's a, it occasions a certain kind of peace that, that, you know, probably akin to the peace that I feel when, when I'm outside, you know, it's, it's a very, it's a very deep kind of moving cultural thing. I often listen to uh, Orthodox chant when yeah. I'm writing, actually. Yeah. I really enjoy it, and it's also because it's. It I cannot when I'm writing, I cannot listen to anything with English lyrics mm-hmm. because it messes me up as right. I'm trying to write. Right. But uh, sometimes the the sometimes the human voice is important to me, mm-hmm. but in a language I don't know, 
so it can't throw me off yeah, as I'm not writing. Can, can absolutely see that. I mean, it would, it would, yeah. I mean, it, it does that, it does that for me in a different way. But it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's very centering, very beautiful. Um, now you're going to a Greek Orthodox church in Madison because yeah. I assume there's no Russian Orthodox church. And and my question is, how different? Yeah. Are they? So, and again, it's it's one of those things. Like the answer depends on. Well, we'll we'll try to give a quick answer. So, I mean, you know, their core beliefs are very are very similar. The language of the service there's there's English and Greek and a little bit of Church Slavonic. Whereas if you were in a Slavic church, there'd be English and Church Slavonic. Okay. The food is different. Um, the vespers situation is different, as I kind of yeah. discussed earlier. Um, and this is really in practice more of a pan-Orthodox community. So there's there, oh. there are Romanians, Ukrainians, some Eritreans and Ethiopians, uh, Greeks, wow. and then a fair number of converts too. So okay. in practice, it's, it's a very rich, diverse kind of community. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, so the, so the core beliefs are, 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 are the same across all the churches. They're just different hierarchies, different languages. And are they reporting to a different patriarch? They report to the patriarch of, you know, yeah, like either the Greek Orthodox Church or the Orthodox Church of America or, you know, in Europe, whatever patriarch. But there's it, not one, there's not one patriarch exactly. over Correct. the whole thing. And it differs from Catholicism in that respect. Right, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. So when the Pope meets with the patriarch and it's a big deal, yeah. All the other Orthodox churches are like, you didn't meet with our patriarch. Correct. I mean, yeah, because there are but like the many Greek, patriarchs. The Greek, the Greek Orthodox patriarch it, is the represents the most people? Probably. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, of course, there's Serbian, there's Russian, there's yeah. Ethiopian, there's there Middle Eastern Orthodox. So it, 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 it uh, you know. Do those patriarchs get along? Do they um, get together and have con- <laughs> conferences? That is beyond my reach. I okay, actually would just, just be speculating on that, you know? I, I mean, I imagine that there's a sort of a fraternal appreciation as they're... Like, usually... a, like a group text that they're all on or something? <laughs> <laughs> well, probably not a group text, but yeah, I get the idea. Um, you came up to me at the Pheasants Forever Banquet. I did. Uh, at which I gave the uh, invocation, which Bob... St. Pierre has told me a couple times was the best invocation in the history of Pheasant Fest Banquet, to which I thought probably not a lot of competition there, but I'll take it. <laughs> pretty probably pretty low bar because I know the kind of pastors who do invocations mm-hmm. at banquets. Yeah. And you know, uh, so I appreciated that. But you came up to me and said, um, you wanted to talk and that you know, we had some a lot in common and that you had thought about getting advanced degree in theology and becoming a theologian or doing yes, writing about that. Yes, so very tell me very about true. that time in your life. Yeah. So I went to college um at uh, Boston College and it was a Jesuit college yeah. and actually um did get a philosophy degree as an undergraduate and then um went on to study philosophy at the graduate level at the UW Madison. Um, oh, and nice. really that was my passion and the, the way that I wanted to study it, I kind of later found out was, you know, probably what you would call continental philosophy. My favorite. Yeah. Yeah. The really, the really rich, you know, central questions of life stuff. And UW Madison, while it's a great school, was very, very hardline Anglo-American An- philosophy. Analytic. Yeah. Analytic. So was my undergrad, which was such a bummer. And it was a, it was a buzzkill. Yeah. You know, it really... Um, it's, it's like just, books full of syllogisms. Exactly. It's like being a math major. It's, it, it, or a logic class, which yeah. is fine, but it's not at all what I was interested in. And so I kind of had to run against the grain there, and I, I did a, a thesis on Heidegger's oh. theory of truth, you know? Okay. 
So where the normal Western theory of truth, you talk about correspondence, like in, in the legal sense, so there's a statement that's reflected in the world, or evidence corroborates a statement. But Heidegger has this sense of like this, uh, truth as being a disclosive sort of thing. He uses the word like aletheia from the Greek. And to me, that was, that was very, very interesting because it, was, it, it actually, you know, it's prior to the state of correspondence. In other words, it's sort of like, well, what does correspondence even mean? What does it mean for something to correspond? But if you don't have this revelatory sense of understanding, you're never going to get to correspondence, if that makes sense. Right, and I would say that it, what my, one of my greatest takeaways from that, from which I then, I did get to study continental philosophy in my master's and in my doctoral work, which was great, because I didn't get it in my undergrad, um, is that also preceding all of that logic is hermeneutics. Like, mm -hmm. how, how do you claim as an analytic philosopher that you have access, like kind of unmitigated, uh, unmediated access to some truth claim, mm -hmm. right? That's right. not going through your own scrim of interpretation, your own biases and predispositions. That's what I loved about Hegel, Heidegger, Gadamer, that whole school uh, that you and I have both studied. Because it seems to me that's what it means to be human is, is interpretation, the hermeneutical moment. And, and, you, and, and that is, I mean, yes, interpretation. That's, I mean, in a, in a word. And I mean, probably why stories about and thinking about the natural world are so compelling to me and compelling to hunters because it's this is like, how do we make ourselves? You know, how do we understand ourselves? You know, how do we interface with this, with this world? And I think probably in the back of my mind there was was the notion of, of, you know, this is a lot like what happens in the natural world, you know, when the curtain is, is pulled back and you see things as they are, you know, that sort of noumenal sense. Yeah, of things. yeah, yeah. Um, so then tell me about your your jump into the conservation world yeah, from, yeah. from that, uh, you know, your interest in philosophy. For sure, for sure. But you know what, I want to do one thing, maybe yeah. back up a little bit. So I came up to you uh, and Mark at Pheasant Fest, and a buddy of mine had sort of dropped a hint, uh, Ashley Peter, so shout out to her for getting this going, Yeah, and a uh, great outdoor communicator, um, and so she said, oh, you should talk to Mark and, and Tony about getting on the show, because she knew I had these interests, so shout out there, um, and then, yeah, back to back to the uh, the conservation world, so Basically, I had always had this interest in nature. I fished a ton as a kid. I bird watched. I came out to Wisconsin to go to graduate school, and I didn't hunt at the time. But I remember there was a time when I had forgotten my lunch at uh, at my. I worked for the university press there for for okay. many years as, as an editor, uh, and uh, you know, it just kind of. 22-year-old, low on blood sugar, kind of scrounging around, and my boss said, "Here, have this," and he slides something down the lunch table, and it was an old building like this, and I'm like, "Oh," and I bite into it. I'm like, "What?" Ever is this? It is so good. So it was. I remember he's a guy of German extraction, and it was a widgeon breast and sauerkraut with oh. caraway seeds and orange. And I'm like, "What is this? Where did you get it? And what is my most direct access point?" Those are really strange questions, John. Why don't we go duck hunting? So, oh my gosh! <laughs> while I was involved with conservation, you know, by being a you know fisherman and a forager and, and liking nature, I didn't really hunt until I was in my early twenties. And, you know, had this job. And then anyway, that kicked off 
purchases of dogs, a cabin, decoy making, it challenging my marriage to the to the nth by going out to all hours of the night and coming home, you know, uh, with with you know. So it, it's it's it ignited a crazy passion. Is I wow. guess the the easiest way to say it. And it was that literally that bite of wild game that did it. Wow. And it just just kicked off. And so then I I, I hunted every chance I could, you know, um, for everything that I could, you know, that I, that I could hunt for. Um, and I continued to work, uh, in the, in the publishing world, basically through the mid two thousands or so. Um, and then I think I sort of, and I had done, I did some freelance writing too, mostly about the outdoors and sort of did this as a sidebar. Um, some pieces in grays and some, and actually a, a book of, uh, nature essays, driftless stories. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then I think at a certain point I realized that, you know, why don't we give this a go, you know, at the, um, why don't I work in, in what I love, you know? And so I, I, about 12 years ago, I began working for Wisconsin DNR in hunter recruitment and then did some communication duties for them and then worked at the Wild Turkey Federation doing similar work to what I'm doing now. And then now as Wisconsin R3 and outreach coordinator for Pheasants Forever, I, I get to sort of live the dream. Most days. Most days. Did, let, I'll, I'm going yeah, to... That's, that's a kind of no, a clumsy... That's I don't know. No, it's it's fascinating. And we do have overlap because I also worked in a publishing house for 10 years as an acquisitions mm. editor mm. and blah, blah, blah. Um, but um, do you remember, did that guy take you on a hunt? Oh, oh my gosh. Tell yeah, me so, about that first oh. hunt. So the first hunt was at a place called Grand River Marsh, which to this day, it's a central Wisconsin marsh. Wild rice, some sago pond weed, some little cattail islands. Um, and I remember it so clearly. We, we were, um, set out a mixed spread of duck and goose decoys. And I don't really remember whether we came home with birds that hmm. day. But he put out some of his hand-carved decoys. He's a pretty talented decoy carver. And watching ducks from, say, you know, 200, 300 yards away... And what he did was he put a number of diving duck decoys on the water, okay. and they kind of were rolling on the chop, even though it was not really a diving duck marsh, but these the puddle ducks, the yeah. movement in the yeah. black and white caught their eye, and you uh -huh. could sort of see how these ducks would just, all at once, were attracted to these things, uh. and began to pitch in, and especially, the, I remember the pintails coming down from such heights and that sort of maple leafing that they do, yeah. and I thought, I think I'm going to have a heart attack, you know? This is just absolutely amazing. And that, yeah, so we, we went out shortly after that. I kind of threw myself upon his mercy and he was yeah. very, very gracious about it. Huh. Um, and as his, another coworker, the three of us would do a lot of duck hunting like that. And that was sort of the, I guess, old days relatively in the early And you 90s. bought your first gun then? Bought you my first gun, gun from bought him? a Remington 870. Everybody does. Everybody the does. 870 it, pump, it 870 works. Express. It's cheap. And it was before like the crappy ones that are made today with the I, synthetic stocks No, and I stuff. have an old Woodstock it's, pump that will pass down. It'll never die. though. It's like an F-150. It is. It is. And you shoulder that thing. And I mean, it's not an expensive gun, no. but it comes up pretty good. You oh, know? yeah. Uh, so yeah, so bought that shotgun, started carving some decoys, bought a duck boat, bought a dog, went to North <laughs> what Dakota. What kind of dog? What kind of dog? So I'm on my third generation of Labrador retrievers now. Nice. First nice. was the best. D Natasha Fetching Princess. She was just an absolutely amazing huh. hunting dog. Um, tremendous amount of, of drive was not 
always the most obedient dog, but just a very, very great cripple getter. You know? uh-huh. So yeah. anything would fall into the cattails. It just didn't stand a chance. Yeah. You know, she would yeah. recover recover that bird and and pheasants and grouse and bycatch like you know rabbit or something. So she was a, a great hunter. Um, got a middle dog that was a little loony, but hunted okay. Had her for about five, and then we got the really expensive great dog on the third Labrador, who turned out to be another failure as as a hunter. Oh no! Yeah. Oh no! Yeah. It did just it just a, an eleven hundred dollar. Um, train wreck of, of, of hunting failure, which I don't know I can go into or not, but uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's the dog you have now? That's the one we have now. She's on forced retirement, you know, oh. um, but she's a sweetie, you know, she's, she's yeah. a sweetheart. And then, I don't know, there could be a poodle pointer, there could be a possible other Labrador. We kind of have to see what it is, but gotcha. yeah, we're, we're, due, we're due for another dog. Okay, yeah. Now, how about yourself? Do you... Do you do you have a- I have a lab. I'm on my third lab also. Um, my first lab was not much of a hunter, but he was, an, he was important in my life. Um, I think I paid 150 or 200 bucks for him at a farm yeah. in New Auburn, Minnesota. My second dog was like your first dog, um, kind of hard-headed, but incredible drive, yeah. like would run through a barbed wire to get to a crippled pheasant, that kind of thing. And she would, it probably, you mean that literally. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, literally, yep. yeah, literally. Yep. And then my dog I have now, he is, he doesn't have quite the drive to hunt as the last dog, but he has, he's more trainable, and he is more, he, he so desperately wants to please me. He's very master-centric. So it makes it very enjoyable to hunt with him. He's so much like my last dog in a duck blind. Um, he would sit and he would quake and cry. He was so excited to be there, which is not great in a duck blind or in a boat especially. Right. This dog, he will just curl up at my feet and realize if dad, he won't bust. If I shoot and miss a bird, he won't bust out of the boat. The last one, I couldn't keep him in the boat. If I fired, he was in the water. I, and- and that was the same one with my driven dog. And the, and the thing is, like, I don't really believe that you should overcorrect a dog like that with right. that much drive what because you then you, you ruin the drive and you get, I don't know what you get, you know? Yeah. But it, 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 it is interesting as this notion, that, oh, you just get a hunting dog. Well, of course, there's training and then there's luck of the draw with breeding and sometimes they There's work. luck of the draw. And I've used actually two different, those two dogs, two and three, are both from wisconsin and the guy i bought the third dog from i think his prices are now up to 1500 mm, bucks mm-hmm. for a lab and it's yeah. just i just that's a tough pill to swallow i know prices are up on everything dog right. food i'm sure all his vet costs are up you know i'm sure every, gas prices are up for everything's up for yeah. him so he has to raise the price on the on the puppies but who 1500 for a lab yeah, it's that's is spending it's tough to tough for me to swallow but We'll get our two. Well, no, you maybe love a new dog, or maybe you, that's why you want me to go duck hunting with you. So you, so because Mark doesn't have a dog either, so I'll have the only. Well, dog. if we if we go to the island where I think we're gonna go, uh huh, it's not that much of an advantage to have a dog there because oh. essentially you're going to be dropping them either on the island or in open water. There's not a lot of emergent there. Now, there's submergent vegetation. There's very yeah. good feed beds there. But there are very few places for, for the birds to hide. If, they, if, you know, if, you, if they're coming over the decoys and you drop them, they're, they're essentially something you could wade out and get or something that you could yeah. get in a boat. You but know? still. But so it's fun. You'd rather send the dog. You'd rather send the dog. <laughs> yeah. You'd rather send the dog. For Although, sure. 
I, we, I, the last time we were at that island, my, we had a gadwall and it went down. And I'm like, I'm going to kind of, you know, take care of it. Nope, the dog's going to go after it. So wouldn't you know, the gadwall dove and never came up. Oh. And not all dogs will dive to get a duck. I know a few that will, but this one didn't. And so... That's true. That's it, tough. Yeah. There are times when it's actually, you know, in a utilitarian way, can be sort of handy to just be able to take care of a cripple. Right, right, right. That's true. Um, so tell me now, um, how do you... Well, let's talk about what you do for yeah, a living. I, then I'm right, going to circle right. back and bring these <laughs> yes. two together. Yes. But you recruit hunters. And what we've... I, you know, I've talked about this quite a bit on the show, and I've had other people who, you know, are, have similar passions. Ashley's been on, and Ken Yang, and other people who, Mark, obviously, and people who really are into, um, you know, recruiting new hunters. Um, but it's an uphill battle. It, you know, it is. It is. And I, and I have to be honest, I, well, all right, why don't I just first sort of factually say what, what I do. So I said what my title is, and I'm, I basically have sort of two buckets of, three buckets of work. One bucket of work is to run programs for new hunters, to a certain extent new shooters, because you can't really go duck hunting if you don't wing shoot, you know. Um, so run these programs, a little bit of angling um, stuff, a little bit of wild foods cooking, but mostly hunting. Second bucket is training mentors to work with new hunters. Third bucket is doing some communication duties for the magazine, being on shows like Reverend Hunter and Modern Carnivore and um, Ray Ruiz's podcast uh, from this morning. Um, so promoting that work. Um, but I, I mean, so I'm not going to achieve the mass hunter recruitment by, you know, having 10 people at a, at a turkey camp or whatever at a, at a time, right? But there is an amazing ripple effect that comes off that. So those and it's like the oldest business model in the world where those people will recruit and act as spokespeople and get other people into the class. Yeah, yeah. So by, by simple arithmetic, no. By sort of like a butterfly effect, you know, it, we, we, we do achieve. And the other thing that we're achieving that way, which is maybe as important as, as, um, as recruitment, is relevance, you know, because even if people are not hunting, if they're influencing other people in their sphere, I mean, hunting is not going to continue if it doesn't is, doesn't continue to be relevant, right? So what I'm trying to do is really change that narrative, right? Like instead of, oh, it's about trophies or it's about masculinity or it's about conquering, it's about food, it's about connection, it's about being at turkey camp and, you know, telling stories. It's, it's about, you know, the best meal that you can create with, with duck breast. And so kind of like one hunter at a time, I'm trying to sort of say, okay, there's this, there's this other way to look at, look at it. And that's, it's gaining. I mean, that has gotten coverage everywhere from like the Wall Street Journal to, oh, yeah. you know, Outdoor Life to you name the place, you know, to PBS. So it is a message that resonates. And, and it's a message that I think people need to hear more of because I think sometimes, you know, people on the coast or people who didn't grow up with it, it you know, it, it's easy to characterize to make a character of it, right? And it's easy to make a character of hunters and some hunters fit that, you know, but it's equally important, you know, more important to, to sort of say, are there other ways of looking at this? You know, are, are you interested in ethical meat? Are you interested in connecting with the natural world? Are you interested in having like a cohort that you go out with? And so these sorts of messages are the ones that's kind of natural because that's, this is what people experience in the turkey camps, right? In, in the duck camps, in the deer camps. And so, 
that I, it, I'm trying to get that message out there and get that up and, and, and better than doing it myself. Like this morning when I was on Ray's podcast, there were two folks that had come through Ray's channels and talked about their experiences as BIPOC folks going to like a turkey camp, you know, run by white hunters. But they said, look, we felt very welcomed, you yeah. know. And, you know, the fellow got a turkey. Uh, the woman came real close to getting one. But they both talked about, you know, it was a safe space, you know, we were taking care of the equipment. So it's sort of like trying to change that narrative one hunter at a time, you know. You know, um, I think part of it is that still the, the statistic of the number of people in the world who are carnivores is a pretty durable statistic. I was just looking at it today for the, for the book, and it's about 90%. Um, it's, you know, people think, oh, well, in other parts of the world, people don't eat meat because all the Buddhists are vegetarians. That's actually not true. Yeah. I mean, they surely there are places in the world where there are a lot of vegetarians, and there are also a lot of places in the world where people eat a lot less meat than the average American eats, right. for sure. But the truth is, most human beings on this planet eat meat. Like, over, like, I don't know, nearly 7 billion of the 7.5 billion people on the planet eat meat. And, and in the industrial production of meat is a relatively new phenomenon in the, in the scheme of things. So for most of human history, as long as there have been homo sapiens who've eaten meat, they've acquired that meat themselves, or they've been a part, or, or they've been right. one degree of separation of, you know, they're married to the person who acquires the mm -hmm. meat, or they're a child of the person who acquires the meat, and they're all involved in the butchery of the meat. And we've lost touch with that so rapidly, and I think we did it without really thinking, just like we cut down forests without really thinking, you know, just like we dammed up rivers without really thinking. And now, just like there are people saying, let's tear out some of these dams. And there are people saying, let's stop cutting down the forests and let's stop mining next to the boundary waters. <laughs> I think it's a similar impulse of people saying, let's figure out where our meat comes from. I should eat less meat, like Michael Pollan says, mm -hmm. eat less of it. Eat more green things, eat less, you know, red things. And, and then the next step is that red stuff you do eat, be part of getting it. Right. And, and I mean, it's so interesting, too, because if you think about mass meat production, okay, the one thing you can say is it's cheap, it's inexpensive, and it's probably like, well, you know. Short-term inexpensive. You know, well, yeah. that's, that's exactly yeah. where I'm going. Yeah. And it's got all these other costs. And then if yes. you think about it from an environmental point of view, think about it from a labor point of view, think about it from an animal rights point of view. Think about it from a spiritual point of view. Or a spiritual point of view, right. Or even even like, yeah, spiritual point of view or animal. You like know, what like, it's doing to us yeah. as a species. Yeah. It, and it, you're, it, like, it, it's probably overlapping with you, what you when you say the ethical. Yeah, it is. It is. So... It's yeah. I mean, there's there's really other than the fact that it's short term, you know, you you can get something for three dollars a pound. You know, you're paying for it in all sorts of other ways, and right. and it, there's no good like you know people are being treated poorly in the factories. The animals are being treated poorly. The runoff is is doing terrible things. So it's sort of like these are all net negatives, yeah. right? Yeah. And so it, it, it is interesting because I do I have had some people in my classes who have either been vegans or who are like you know ethically minded meat eaters and to me that's a you know when you put together that number as you say 90 percent of the people 
and probably a good percentage of them have problems, right, with commercial um, slaughter, you know, with this sort of mass meat industry, you would think that you have at least an audience that would understand that, if not uh, understand hunting, yeah. if not actually yeah. hunt themselves. And there are some people for whom it's just like, look, I, I, you know, I realize it's a contradiction. I can't pull the trigger. I'll help butcher it. And I think that that's fine. I think just knowing more about it is, is better than knowing less about it, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you think about, this is something I've, I've written about, I've, I, and I've asked other guests about, um, about people who say, oh, I would never, I could never hunt, I could never hunt. And then I say, well, do you fish? Oh, yeah, I fish. What do you, I mean, it, there, is this, there is this anthropomorphism that the more, I, I call it the eyelash effect, because mm-hmm. a deer has big, glassy brown eyes and eyelashes. And so people are like, oh, I just can't, I could never kill a deer, it's Bambi, you know. But they'll kill a fish without thinking, or they'll even or, throw a fish back, or they'll catch and then it. they'll see the fish floating belly up. Right, five and, minutes and, later. And that's like in that. Yeah, I, I well, I'm probably equally mystified with that. And when you think about it, too, there are some fish that live very long and that are very intelligent, like sturgeon, for instance. They could yeah. be 70, 80, 100 years old, right? right? And I mean, and killing one of those is, you know, versus killing a rabbit that might live nine months. You know, I mean, if you're going to start to come up with hierarchies. I put the sturgeon before the rabbit, right? I mean, you know, so, so yeah, I find that mystifying. And I mean, I, I will sometimes, you know, look, if people want to release fish, that's fine. I don't do a ton of catch and release fishing because I, I just, with my own personal ethic, I feel like if I'm going to be causing them pain, I would rather do that very purposefully and extract a certain number of those to eat. You know, it just doesn't, it does, to catch a lot of fish and to release them is not particularly satisfying to me. To catch a moderate number and to have them for a good meal, share them, that's, that's gratifying for me. But, um, but yes, I, it's mis- mystifying, I guess, just, just as a notion of like, oh, well, I'm going to eat chicken, but I'm not going to eat, you know, but I'm against hunting. I mean, that's just indefensible. I don't even, you know, it doesn't even, it doesn't even like warrant a comment. And this is what I think, this is, I think, a big turning in the world you and I inhabit. Mm-hmm. Because I think um, those of us who are urban and live in, you know, hipster college towns like you, I think there is a turning toward people who realize, yeah, that's silly. I can't eat chicken and Sam against hunting. I yeah. can't, I, yeah. you know. And I can't say, oh, I don't want the animal to suffer. And then, well, I've, I've actually, like, I've been to a chicken kill plant, a Tyson chicken kill plant. And I've watched, you know, uh, 35 chickens per minute being slaughtered in a, a factory that's open 24 hours a day, three shifts. You know, it's, yeah, it's indefensible. And, like and then I, I probably even go a little bit further and say, like, I think it's a, it's, it's a fine choice. And said, well, look, I want to lessen my carbon imprint, you know, footprint. I want to lessen my impact on animals. I'm going to choose not to eat meat. I mean, I, I can understand sure. that. But whether or not you choose to eat meat is not the only way that you engage with the natural world or, or displace other animals, you know? So it's not as if you can just be removed from this cycle of, you know... Right, and the farmer who's, the farmer who's raising your vegetarian crops is Correct. killing coyotes is Correct. killing deer like is killing yeah. <laughs> like and is killing insects by and, the billions right and and so like you could say that but as long as you're aware of that so that that yeah you know um so let me ask you this now to bring your bring bring these two aspects of your life together um 
as someone who's a person of faith, mm-hmm. who's who even thought, who even and who studied philosophy, and and who obviously you're knowledgeable about theology, um, and you're a conservation hunter, angler. How do those worlds intersect for you? How does I know you've done writing, but I wonder in your own spirit, how does your faith inform your hunting? How does your hunting inform your faith? Well, that's great. That's a great question. Um, I I guess is a very broad broad take on it, but it's 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 a big question, and I'll, and I'll I think that, and I was just talking about this on the previous podcast with Ray and his guests. When I'm out hiking in the woods, or if I'm out bird watching, it's a fine experience. I, you know, I see things, I understand, I, you know, but it is the relationship that I have to the animal that I'm hunting and to the ecosystem in which I'm hunting that brings those two worlds together for me. And to me, now, everyone doesn't see it this way, but for me, it is a way to, you know, I, I don't, I don't feel like the, the details of creation are, are laid out in some sort of like direct fashion, but it's more like poetry, and you get to glimpse these things sometimes. And so, you know, you're out on a trout stream. Or I was out on a trout stream a couple of years ago, and um, walking along the trout stream, I caught a few trout. I could see there was a, a brood of wood ducks swimming around with the mom. And all of a sudden, they all got very, very nervous. And then a dark shadow came up, big two-foot shadow. Jaws came up around one of the ducklings, ate it, you know. And I was just silenced. It was such a moment. And, and to me, what I saw in that was just sort of like a microcosm of like the order of the natural world working. And it was both terrifying and it was beautiful at the same time. And so I guess... The reason, and it's a slightly different answer, but I, I feel like it kind of gets to what you're asking. The reason, the, the way that I bring these things together and the reason why I find hunting and angling so compelling is they allow me to engage with the world in a profoundly tangible way, but in a profoundly spiritual way. And it's like you, you can go deeper. Both of those, they may seem like contradictions on the surface, but they are actually kind of, you're just going very deep into experience. And, you know, just like this this idea of predation, you get a glimpse into the nature of things, the noumenal nature of things, you know, not just sort of the sort of the boring cause and effect, but you get, you know, the the, the mask is peeled back, you know, you get to see things how the, how they really are. And so to me, you know, that is why I do it. I go out because it's, that is, I understand the natural world, and I also am able to sort of, you know, you, you know, you can sort of gauge your effects from you, you. You see death, you understand death, and I feel like it keeps me kind of grounded and it keeps me honest. And I am not a hundred percent. I do not eat all wild game. Probably a third or half of our meat is wild, or you know, something that we've bartered for. But it, it allows me, I feel like, to understand life and death in a very honest way, which for me is consonant with the spiritual tradition. For other people, they may have other ways of framing it. But for me, it brings things full cycle in a way that other experiences do not. You know, and the finality of it and having to make, make those decisions, 
And, you know, honestly, too, the sense of r regret, you know, when I take an animal's life, that's part of it, too. You know, that you're sort of involved with this web of sanctity and you're very deeply involved. And as I say, when you're hunting and fishing, you're involved in a way that you uh, otherwise would not be, you know. And so those experiences to me are akin to what I experience when I'm in church, um, and they're, they, they, they tell me what it's like to be human, and they tell me what it's like to exist in an ecosystem. So I don't know if that's an answer to your question. No, it's, it's, it's an attempt. Um, but you see the, 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 you know, most of the time you just sort of see cars and traffic and stores and, you know, just things. But you see the things in themselves, I guess, you know, to use a philosophical term. So... Not not Good. just not just the, the you know the, the the you know the the shadows the things that create the shadows on the cave walls. <laughs> see the real things. Yeah, you see the real things. The the the, the you know the, the the forms, the noumenal, whatever. And as I say, for for me, there's a spiritual component to that, um, and it's sort of inscribed into that. You know, the woods are sort of an icon, if you will. You know. Mm. Mm. Well, that's lo I love it. Thank you. And um, I guess finally, then now that you've brought it up we can bring your, your actual faith tradition together, but um, icons, Orthodox people don't pray to icons, Correct. they pray through icons. That's, I think that that's a very... So talk about that just to close us out. Well, they're, uh, they're, you know, they're, they are a means to connecting with, 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 a, with a saint. They're a means to connecting with, with a divine world. Um, and you also, very interestingly, you do not... Um, make an icon, you write an icon, it's called writing, and there's a strict sort of regimen of prayer and fasting that goes into it. So I think that there's a sense that sanctity goes in and sanctity comes out of the icon. And it's really, really interesting because the huh, tangent here, but the iconographer in our church was a former Vietnam vet, came back from the war, had sort of an epiphany, and we're all sort of sending him a video message. And um, he has transformed the inside of that church with these with these with these, you know, icons that he's written, and wow. uh, it's yeah, it's 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 a very it's a very moving thing, and I mean, it's um, yeah. So I think that there's there's a great deal of spirituality and care that goes into them, and I think that they can be vehicles for getting us there too. In the way, I guess, as I was saying, that the natural world is. Well, thank you. This thank has you, been great. Tony. This and has been great, and let's go shoot some ducks this fall. Let's go shoot some <laughs> ducks, yes, and then have a good cabin dinner after that. And I'll try to match that one duck dinner that I had 36 <laughs> years ago. The bite of wild game did it. Exactly. I love it. All right. Well, thank you. Many thanks. Thanks. Thanks.